Our reading is from Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 24. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the one formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that this text is very controversial. I pray that you would allow people to clearly understand what it is your intent to convey through Paul's words. Thank you, Lord, for your word, Thank you for your mercy and your love uh, at work in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I chose this series, I guess I really wasn't sure the emphasis that I would have. I assumed TULIP, and I've deviated from that just a little bit. I also think that in the back of my mind, I really didn't want it to be the big showdown between Calvinism and Arminianism. But... What I've kind of found as I've been trying to put these messages together is that the five points of Calvinism were birthed in controversy. And I really can't escape that controversy, and I really don't think God wants me to. And so uh, instead of avoiding Arminianism then, I've decided to engage with it much more fully than I had. And to start out, I will address a question that Jared Ridge posed to me last week. He said at lunch, will I address the cage stage of conversion to Calvinism? And I didn't know what he meant. I had not heard that before. And uh, he then described, and so that's the point where most newly minted Calvinists should be caged because they're a danger to themselves and a menace to society. <laughs> and uh, I was no different. I was, I was uh, uh, definitely worthy to be caged during that period. I was involved in a Bible study. This was in 1982, late 1982, as I recall. And uh, 
I had become reformed, I told someone last week when they asked. I, I became reformed in a brief conversation with a Westminster Seminary student while at school. And then I went into this Bible study where this seminary student is sharing this with this fellow who had opened up his home, another Marine, who was married and living out off base with a couple of kids. And he was an Armenian, pretty much a, a diehard Armenian at the point that he began this Bible study, but he very quickly became a Calvinist, much to the dismay of most people in his church. I was one of those people. I got us booted out of his church by filling out one of, a, a, on one of those comment cards when the pastor had said something I didn't think squared with Calvinism, I posed him a question. I thought it was fair. He did not. He spoke to my friend during the midweek, and we found a new place to worship. Uh, we didn't go back there. And I don't blame that pastor. He was looking out for the peace of his church, and he didn't feel I was very peaceful. I would agree with him now that I've been involved in the church for many, many years. But... I remember, though, being at that Bible study and being in lots of conversations. Now, sometimes my conversations with Armenians, sure, maybe I offended them. Maybe I was that worthy-to-be-caged person. But the seminary student that led that study was the epitome of the verse I covered last week, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. He was great. He was great. And yet... Uh, some of the people that would come to the study that were from the church that my friend was a member at, as soon as this topic came up, this one man I remember, he just leaned back in his folding chair in the family room, crossed his legs, crossed his arms, sat there, practically smoke coming out of his nostrils until the meeting ended. He bolted, him and his wife, never to be seen again. And that is how I've seen many people respond to these words. And so that's why I think it is very important that we discuss this, that we address this, because you will likely see this if you haven't seen it yet. I want to begin with definitions. First, I'll begin with the definition of election. This is from the book Concise Theology by J. Packer. It's another book that I'd recommend every home have. I would personally recommend that you put it in your uh, personal throne room and leave it there until you've gotten through it. Um, the verb elect means to select or choose out. The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, the race, those whom he would redeem through Jesus Christ. That's from Packer's little book. Now, I want to address this term, though, election, because we are colored by our use of that term in our culture. But really, if you think about it, they're the same thing. In our elections, we, the populace, vote from a few candidates. We choose out the candidate to hold, let's say, uh, the governor of Nebraska. This, though, is an election that's kind of in reverse. You have God who is choosing out of these many. But really, an election is still selecting or choosing out. So whether it's the, the many choosing the one or the one choosing the many, it's still the term election. Now. I need to define both unconditional election and conditional election. Now also, if you have a handout, you'll have uh, Packer's definition of election, which is very good. I, I can't possibly cover all of what he covers. Unconditional election. This is the Calvinist perspective. God elects people to salvation by his own sovereign choice and not because of some future action they will perform or condition they will meet. Those who come to Christ become his children by his will, not by theirs. This is from 
a great website called Got Questions. The definition for conditional election. Conditional election is the belief that God elects people for salvation based on his foreknowledge of who will put their faith in Christ. It's based on the condition of man doing something of his own free will. Both of these are from that website, Got Questions, and I think they're fair uh, attempts to define these two terms. I want you to remember throughout this message that one of these terms at least is bogus because they are mutually exclusive. You can't have in the Bible both conditional election and unconditional election. One must be false. Now, a synonym, a synonym that I want to tell you and that I used in the title, the title of this message is chosen by father. That's a synonym for elect. The verb would be to choose and the noun would be chosen and elect covers both of those in our terminology. One more term, reprobation. The existence of an elect necessitates the existence of a non-elect. That non-elect is termed the reprobate. So the non-elect are the reprobate, meaning that they're in a reprobate state. They are an unbeliever. So simply put, the elect are saved, the reprobate are lost. Now, Calvinists and Arminians agree on these terms, election, conditional election, unconditional election, and reprobation. All of them mean the same thing to all of us. We just don't abide by all of them. Now, the uh, Calvinists and Arminians agree that the elect will go to heaven, the reprobate will go to hell. They also agree. Now, here I'm talking about Arminian scholars. Arminian laymen could be anywhere, all over the map. But any good Arminian scholar who's evangelical, who hasn't pitched the Bible in part or in whole, they also know that God knows the destiny of every person that will ever have existed on earth. God knows the elect. God knows the reprobate. It's just they have a different term for how they become elect. Evangelical Arminian scholars must embrace this because of those verses that refer to God knowing the names of all of the saved. They're recorded in the book of life. So this was written before time began. So there is no argument about that if you have a view of God's word that's high, viewing it as inerrant. To reject this, any Arminian, like I said, and layman, and really anybody, I mean, most Christians have at least some heretical views, most likely, that they haven't ferreted out of their thinking and their, and their system yet. The question is, are they resisting people when they correct them? That is the question. We all must be open to being corrected by people and eliminating from our thinking and our speaking what offends God and what is wrong so now this, though. Calvinists say God chose this outcome. God chose who's in this list and who's in this list. Elect versus reprobate. The Arminians, however, say that these lists were determined by the free will exercised by every one of those individuals and that the reason God can put their names on the lists is that God knows all things. He exists outside of time. He sees who it is that will responds to the gospel in faith. He knows who will be saved. They then become the elect. So belief precedes their election. So now, Calvinists believe God chose the outcome. Arminians believe man chose the outcome. That comes down to be the basic difference. 
The question I want to ask you is why does God choose to not interfere in the destiny of the lost? All of those many people on the naughty list, the reprobate list. And the question has an answer. For the Arminian, it's because it would violate their free will. For the Calvinist, it's that God has allowed that to happen to satisfy his justice. Now, let me repeat these again. Calvinists and Arminians, they define the elect and the reprobate the same. And so going forward, that's nice. It's something we can uh, lean upon. I want to introduce some concepts. I'll give you two verses. I'll first turn to Ephesians 1 and read verses 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So again, Calvinists and Arminians agree that God chose the elect before the foundation of the world. Both of us are in agreement on this. We disagree, however, on whose will prevailed. God's or man's. The Arminian would say that their will in coming to faith aligns with God's will because God wants all people to come to faith. So do you understand now that the Arminian believes that their coming to faith through their concept of, of election then brings them into agreement with God's will? Philippians 1.29 To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him. Again, this is kind of a Calvinist phrase. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him. Calvinists and Arminians agree that belief in Christ is a gift from God given only to the elect. We can be in agreement there. But the Arminians believe that the gift was offered to all humans. And yet those that accepted it became the elect by virtue of that acceptance. Calvinists also believe all men were offered the gift. We believe in preaching the gospel to all men, but that only the elect will accept it. So again, it's that definition of elect. Calvinists and Arminians agree that elect and reprobate were fixed before time, and they agree that faith is a gift. These are the two, these are the two things I've covered. Now let me deviate from this just to point out this. If anybody disagrees with either of these statements, that the elect and the reprobate are fixed before time, or that faith is a gift, then now you're off into heresy. So open theists describe the first class because they believe God is kind of pantheistic in the world, changing things, doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen. And it's all to honor man, let them kind of free roll through life in existence. And God is then, meanwhile, putting together a plan in order to maximize uh, the uh, virtue maximize the belief, that type of thing. But open theists are openly heretical. They deny a lot of scripture in order to hold to what it is that they say is true instead. The other, those that deny that faith is a gift, that it somehow works uh, earned, now you're into the cults. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both believe firmly that works are absolutely required to get into heaven. So I want to now, this is for me the exciting part of this message actually. I'm going to give you a mini training course in being an Arminian because I'm going to give you some of the phrases in the Bible, the verses in the Bible that would seem to support Calvinism. And I'm going to show you 
with my Arminian cloak on, why they don't, and how you can uh, show those Calvinists that they don't. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Jesus is speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This appears to define those that will come to Jesus as having been given by the Father. The Arminian, who knows their theology, will say, no sweat. God has looked down through the quarters of time, determined who will believe, identified the elect, and now he's granted them to the Son. Problem solved. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Same answer. God has looked down through time, identified the elect, and now he's drawing them to Christ. Now, you get a little bit of time travel twist in your head, but let's not even go there now. We don't need to. Those problems are hard to solve. Let's not worry about it. If it can be solved easier, let's go the easier route, and we will. Acts 13, 48. This is a slam dunk. Now listen to this carefully. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Now if you're an Arminian, wouldn't you love that to say, and as many believed were then appointed to eternal life? You'd love it to say that. But I'm telling you, you don't need to worry about that. You've got this licked if you're an Arminian. Why? See, traditionally, this is a powerful verse in the Calvinist arsenal. And yet, Arminians would prefer the other reading. Many of the laymen would. But all they need to say is this. Those appointed to believe were those that God looked down through the tunnels of time, saw, made elect because they believed, brought back here, drew them to Christ. Now they're appointed. I mean, this is easy stuff. It is. It, it really is. I can train you to be an Arminian. Now, this is the last one I'm going to share from this section, and this is what John Piper says is perhaps the most important text of all in relation to the teaching of unconditional election. And this is in John Piper's book, Five Points. And I love John Piper, and I love his book. Romans 8, 28 to 30. I have to turn there to read it. And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God. Many of you are probably mouthing this along with me. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. No problem. No problem at all, because the same tactics apply here. If I were a scholarly Arminian, I would not worry about this. Why? Because we Calvinists insist on interpreting for new as for love, as it probably should be in the Bible, but there is a valid rendering that says, for whom he foreknew would believe, he also predestined. So see, they just, they just have this implication in there, and they've solved the whole problem. And all of what I've said here applies. So that's what John Piper calls the best argument for the Calvinists against the Arminians. 
And yet I think Arminians shoot it down. Sure, we can quibble over the word for new, but they feel vindicated in their view. I could go on, but obviously I would hope that you've seen a pattern that I've developed here that you could apply to many, many more verses that you will find defending the Calvinist perspective on unconditional election. But we need to go further. We need to do other things. I want to again cover the process by which the elect are chosen is the key to everything. The Calvinists say God chooses the elect without regard to human will or work. The Arminian says God chooses the elect based on his knowledge of who will accept the gospel call because he's omniscient. Calvinists and Arminians agree all, event, all earthly events are known by God and unchangeable. They agree that human works, prayers, and efforts are all means used in God's plan to bring people to salvation. They disagree, however, on whose will is ultimate in salvation. Is it God's will or is it man's will? Now, let's look at the heart of Arminianism. Is it God's will to save every human being? That's a question for you. You have to know your Bible. Is it God's will to save everyone? If you answer that yes, as Arminians do, and all are not saved, then God has failed in his mission. And you have to ask, how can that be? How can God fail to satisfy such an important goal in his world? And the Arminians say that it is not that God can't satisfy that goal. It's that he refuses to do so at the expense of man's free will. So he has to allow man to make that decision as to whether to believe or not. He won't violate man's free will to save them. They must choose freely. This is the crux, the heart of, I call it the mainspring of Arminian beliefs. Now let me give you four verses that an Arminian will reference to say that God wants all men to be saved. The first is from 1 Timothy 2, and I'll read from verses, the end of verse 3 to the beginning of verse 6. God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That's a strong way of putting it. I'm not going to comment on it right now. I'll come back to it. The second verse is this. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, another powerful verse for the Arminians, defending their belief that God wants all people to be saved, and that's his will. Ezekiel 18.23 Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? and not that he should turn from his ways and live. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Now I want to go back and address those four again and give you the Calvinist response. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6. And let me read it again. It's, it is powerful. 
God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. You always have to define these terms, though. And let me go back to verse 1 of chapter 2 and read to you from verse 1 to the middle of verse 2. He is impressing upon Timothy something. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. So see, Paul has taken all and then he's qualified it by saying, I want you praying for kings and those in authority. That would be unusual. He's in Ephesus. He's asking them to pray for these Gentile leaders who have never known God, who don't want to know God. And so what I, I can't go into great depth on defending this, but that is what the Calvinists would say, is the alls here are qualified by the, by the fact that this is an implied all types, not only kings, not only authorities, but people from all classes of society. I want you praying for them. Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, any should perish, all should come. But again, if you go back to the first verse in that chapter, 2 Peter 3, 1, his first word is, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. So Peter is restricting his view, his us, would be fellow believers that he's writing to, and he's telling them that God is long-suffering toward us. And see, this very same thing is told by Jesus concerning the elect in foretelling the demise of Jerusalem. For the sake of the elect, God shortened those days. And so these, what Peter has in mind, are the elect, the us, the believers. Now, Ezekiel 18, 23, and 33, 11, it's interesting, and the reason I shared both of those with you, and there are other verses that share these types of thoughts, but God is having Ezekiel warn the Israelites of an imminent destruction should they persist in their evil ways. And let me read verse uh, 11 again of chapter 33. Say to them as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So God is not talking to all mankind. He's talking specifically to the nation of Israel, saying, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to take you out. Now, these warnings are all throughout the Old Testament. This does not prove that God wants all men everywhere through all time to be saved, to come to saving faith. And hardly all men are covered under this. All the other nations other than Israel are intentionally excluded from that sentence. So again, I ask, is it God's will to save everyone, every human? That's what the Armenians say is God's goal. If it is God's goal to do that, why do so many texts speak of people being destined for hell? And let me bring you a couple verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.8, that same, uh, or uh, first chapter, uh, first letter. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now I have to call back your Arminian read the Bible training. I've just read you two verses that you can easily knock out of the park if you're an Arminian. 
Let me read 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 again. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're talking about two appointments, to wrath or to salvation. God looked through the quarters of time, determined the elect. Here he is, he's drawing them to Christ, and then he appoints them to either destruction or salvation based on whether they're on the good or the naughty list. So see, the Arminians have resolved this. And the second one in 1 Peter 2, 8 is the same. The word is used as appointed. So, I would ask you, however, if it is God's will that every person on earth come to faith, and we're not talking about just from Christ on, but throughout all time, do you believe God has done a good job at that? I don't think so. God destroyed the entire earth every human being except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people he saved. All the rest were destroyed. Now, let's not blame God. Noah was obviously a very good boat builder. But in 2 Peter, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. He was just a horrible preacher. Right? No converts. He lived hundreds of years. And it's only his family on the boat. Can't we blame him for that? I think. Let's blame him. Let's not blame God. God just chose the wrong guy to try to save all of humanity. And then he had to destroy them all. Also, Abraham alone, Nehemiah tells us, was chosen out of all of the men that walked on the earth. Now, this is as the age of humans is uh, reduced from that incredible eight or 900 years down to a paltry 200 years. But he chose only Abraham, one man. Couldn't he have done better? Couldn't God have done a better system if he wanted to truly save every person from going to hell? Surely he could have. Before we look at Romans 9, I want to cover two more texts. The first is John 15, 16. And let me read this. This is Jesus speaking. He's speaking only to the 11 apostles because he's already sent uh, Judas off to betray him. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, part of this we've covered in the earlier Armenian training. I chose you and appointed you. We can cover both of those through what we know about God's foreknowledge and how the elector determined. But this one is very tricky. You did not choose me. Jesus prefaced this statement with, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So see, this one is trouble. I'm, I'm past my Arminian training for you. I don't know how you can get around that. What I would offer you, though, in good faith, is a mulligan. Let's take a mulligan. This is, after all, the 12 apostles. This is the one man on all of the earth that had to go to hell because it had to fulfill Scripture. So, okay, Judas, and now we've got the 11, and they have to propagate the church. They have to become the foundation of the church. And so we essentially give God the opportunity to override 12 human wills in order to be ensured that Scripture is fulfilled and His church gets planted properly. 
And mulligan, that's a golf term. You hit a drive into the woods, oh, that's okay, hit another one. That's a mulligan. So we give God a freebie on this one. So the next text, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. In your handout, I ask you to fill in three blanks here, or three different sentences. This text is very difficult to address from an Armenian standpoint for these three reasons. First, let me describe this process where God looks through the quarters of time that the Armenians is their linchpin as the self-selection process. It's the, it's the self-selection of the elect. That works on an individual basis not on groups. And so we're, diffing, we're dealing here with a very different problem. These are groups. There are many groups mentioned. Not many mighty are called. Not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. So he's talking about all these groups and that God has done the choosing. How, if God is not choosing individuals, could he have ensured that his requirements are met in filling out these groups? Additional details are given as to God's choice, all these different groups. Three times in this little section it says, God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. And then the last sentence tells us why God has chosen. And why did God make these choices? That no flesh should glory in his presence. So we see it was God's choice all along, at least with these groups. We don't know who he populated from, how he populated them from. And I believe if you're an Armenian, you have difficulties with this. You have to employ some other mechanism within your arsenal of, of tools. It all comes down to choice. It all comes down to whose choice prevails, God or man's. And now let's finally turn to our text, Romans 9. Romans 9, 10 through 13 reads, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul cites the purpose of God here in what he just said. Arminians say God's ultimate purpose is to honor their free wills, that God sublimates his own sovereign will under theirs in order to not save anyone against their will. They turn this verse completely around. So now, note, however, what Paul says in verse 14 and following. What shall we say then is their unrighteousness with God? 
So Paul is presuming that his reader will perchance think, well, wait a minute, this is not fair, God choosing. So he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So see, we've done with, we've responded with this choosing, and they're being accused of being unfair, but yet Paul hits both of the points. He hits not only works of man, but he hits the will of man. And Paul casts it aside. Paul explicitly states that man's will and works have no bearing on God's choice. Then we come to verse 18. He has mercy on whom he wills, and, harden, and whom he wills, he hardens. Now let's pause here for a minute and think about the Arminian axioms that I stated earlier. First, God wants all men to be saved. If God wants all men to be saved, why is he hardening hearts? What on earth? Doesn't he himself understand his own system that it doesn't work this way? I think as Calvinists, we have a right to kind of get offended at this point against our Arminian brethren because they blame us for violating God, calling him unfair, but yet this is exactly what they're doing. So, he has mercy on whom he wills, whom he wills he hardens. God wants all men to be saved according to the Arminians, but he's hardening their hearts. And men self-select their way into the system, but if you go back to the Old Testament, God chose Abraham, and then of his sons he chose Isaac and discarded Ishmael, and then of Isaac's sons he chose Jacob and discarded Esau. There's an awful lot of discarding going on here for a God who wants every man to come to faith. This system that God built does not support that thesis. Earlier I mentioned there are two competing definitions of elect. Conditional election, unconditional election. You have to remember, though, that one of these is wrong. At least one of them, or both of them. Paul, at this point in writing this letter, has a clear opportunity. If it is conditional election, Paul has a clear opportunity to state that view. What does he do? Let me remind you of those views. Unconditional election. God elects people to salvation by his own sovereign choice and not because of some future action they will perform or condition they will meet. Those who come to Christ become his children by his will, not their, their will. Conditional election. Conditional election is the belief that God elects people for salvation based on his foreknowledge of who will put their faith in Christ. It's based on the condition of man doing something of his own free will. So we see these competing definitions, and now let's resume reading. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So now, if Paul was wanting to defend self-selection, he's doing a pretty pitiful job of it. And Arminians will tell you that. I'm going to share a quote from an Arminian uh, commentary writer in a minute. You will say to me then, this is Paul speaking, 
he's hypothesizing the next question that the reader will have. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Paul has just stated that it's God's will that he saves some and harden others. And then he says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Why is Paul going this way? If conditional election is true, it just makes no sense. What the Arminians have posited with this God's foreknowledge looking down there and identifying the elect is the noose from which we can hang them. And we ought to hang them. They deserve to be hanged. This belief, anyway, they ought to become Calvinists. They're wrong in their views. And they really must become Calvinists if they want to maximize the honoring of God that is our duty as his children on this earth to do. Let me read to you how Paul answers his hypothetical question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. The only thing I've seen Arminians uh, accuse this of is that it's posed in a theoretical. Paul begins it with what if. He's giving a real answer to his hypothetical question, but yet they say the answer is hypothetical so we can disregard it. But make no mistake, Paul rebuked such insolence. And the path Paul travels down in Romans 9 is entirely on the path of unconditional election, where he had incredible opportunity to defend unconditional election, and he chose not to. Years ago, when I was in that bookstore, when I told you about this friend who hosted the Bible study, what's funny is at that very time, He was on kind of sabbatical from the Marine Corps. They were paying him to go to school. So he was going to the same school I was going to to get a a master's degree in computer science. He was moonlighting at a Bible bookstore. Now, this Bible bookstore was Arminian through and through. It's the one I'd been going to for the past year in downtown Oceanside. And so I went there looking for commentaries on Romans, and I found one by a man named Ironside, and I flip it open to Romans 9. I'm a newly minted, should-be-caged Calvinist, and I read this by this man. This is the worst illustration and analogy Paul could have used in Romans 9 about the potter and the clay. That's what a Bible commentator wrote about Paul. So I didn't buy that commentary. I, have, I don't own any Romans Armenian commentaries, so I have to find what I can find online. I just won't waste the money on them. So now, I've not debated an Armenian for a long time on this, and, I, and by the heat I express here, I don't want you to believe that that's how I would interact with them. Now, frankly, though, theoretically, if they're listening, maybe they stopped at that point. You know, they're listening. This is, what, September 8th. They're listening a month from now on some 
you know, our site or something, and they stopped because I got, I got rather aggressive with them. But Armenians are missing out big time on something beautiful, and I wish I could convince them. I really do. God's word, however, is so clear to us Calvinists, and if God's word can't convince them, if Romans 9 can't convince them, if they cling to this weak read that God wants all humans on earth to be saved, yet there's so much biblical evidence against that perspective. And that is what they have to say in order to say that God is protecting man's free will, in order to sublimate his own desires to man's. This message is not meant for Arminians. It's meant for you, Calvinists, who can appreciate what it is that's been said. I want you to take comfort in this. I want to read something from what I included in uh, Packer's comments on election. This is from the start of the second paragraph. The doctrine of election, like every truth about God, involves mystery and sometimes stirs controversy. But in Scripture, it is a pastoral doctrine brought in to help Christians see how great is the grace that saves them and to move them to humility. So that is my prayer for you. Not that you will become a caged Calvinist or want to be a caged Calvinist and go out there and bash Arminians, but that you personally would appreciate this great, great grace that God has lavished on us. I want to close by reading the repeat verse from Psalm 107. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this. Uh, chosen by Father is a tremendous truth of Scripture that we appreciate and that we love. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for having chosen us. We know that if you had allowed us to remain in our sins and in our free will, consistent with our fallen nature, we would have continued to rebel against you until death. So we thank you, Father. You stepped in and saved us. And for that, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.